Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Coming out of the global pandemic that was the Spanish flu, America entered into a time that we know now as the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties happened for a variety of reasons. First, coming out of a very dark time uh, at the end of World War I, um, where upwards of 50 million young lives were lost. The Spanish flu followed 1918 to 1920 and lost 50 to 100 million more lives. I mean, it's, it, it was the most unprecedented sort of what they call now a natural disaster that the world and world history has ever recorded. Um, coming out of that era in the 1920s, there were quite a few uh, things that happened that sort of instigated this boom in the economy. There were some, some conservative presidents like Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge uh, cut taxes across the board, incredibly sort of business-friendly administrations, sometimes too business-friendly and deeply corruptly business-friendly administrations, um, but incentivized sort of the age of, of big business. Uh, this kind of melded with uh, new technologies that made it possible to mass market things for ordinary Americans, just things like the, the vacuum cleaner or, um, or blenders, things that could kind of change the way or the amount of time we spent doing the things we do. And so this combined then with some older technologies like the automobile, the radio, and the way of producing became um, cheap enough that the average uh, American home could afford eventually to have an automobile. I think around 1922, uh, half of all American homes had a car which was an extraordinary change uh, just in a few years, as you may imagine. This, combined with an uh, unprecedented rise in interest in advertising as an entirely new sort of way in which to talk about things, meant that desire was now being created by very intelligent people uh, through the mass marketing mediums of both print and radio, which had become incredibly affordable ways to get your product out there and to get your stories about your products out there. All of these combined with people moving to urban environments in the city, um, being a little less connected to sort of broad labor um, and a little more specialized in the things that they did. Um, a new sort of era of leisure kind of resulted. You think of the 1920s and the uh, Hollywood sort of studio system boom. Uh, we suddenly had entertainment being sort of mass marketed in a way that was just getting more um, out there for people to enjoy and people had more time suddenly to enjoy it. Um, this era also, of course, led to what we uh, now see as sort of looser social mores, uh, a lot of drinking, a lot of dancing, and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of fun by all, by all, by all uh, uh, intents and purposes for certain people in certain places, um, but somewhat to the chagrin of uh, traditional conservative uh, people. Uh, they watched this sort of age of of, of morality kind of slide. And I think in part it was as a result or a reaction to a very difficult and dark era that had preceded it. The Roaring Twenties, uh, however, of course, didn't last 
all that long uh, and led to um, a bust, as it were, of, uh, of catastrophic proportions in the collapse uh, in 1929. Um, now, I tell this brief and, uh, and, and, and sort of uh, dirty story about the Roaring Twenties uh, because last season, I believe it was, my co-pastor John Hallowell mentioned that we may be uh, seeing or being prepared to see a sort of 100-year cycle of our own history and coming out of a global pandemic, or at least out of the heart of it as we are experiencing in this moment, uh, at the beginning here, still early quarter of 22, um, we are suddenly starting to see a rise in consumer spending that, as Jordan Wiseman points out in Slate Magazine, is, has gone past pre-pandemic levels, um, that there is now this age of new technologies. We think of all the, the kind of kerfuffle around the metaverse and people thinking about how people are spending their time in new and different ways because really advanced technologies are becoming really common for every American household. Um, these kinds of things, thinking about the austerity of our, of our COVID moment um, and now maybe the uh, decadence, the indulgence of, our, of maybe our post-COVID moment has uh, stirred up a lot of interesting thoughts for myself and my guest. A perennial favorite, I must say, Ms. Hashimov. Uh, Laura Hashimov is joining us back on the podcast to discuss all manner of things, things, consumerism and Christianity. Welcome back to the podcast, Laura. Thank you, David. Let's talk about stuff. stuff. All the stuff. All the stuff. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of stuff in all of our lives. And yet, we are very recently out of the moment of sort of the most terrifying uh, uh, sort of, let's say, variant or spread even of, of right. COVID. I mean, that's not a month in our rear view. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a wild time to even be thinking about um, a possible Roaring Twenties, except that there are a lot of really interesting parallels there that I think uh, at least are suggested even in my, my brief overview. Um, and maybe it's actually a good time uh, to be thinking before we're in the thick of it, uh, to be thinking about our relationship to, to stuff, to this sort of possibility of of more. Um, it's not a topic that you and I have avoided. We've talked a lot about mm-hmm. um, sort of the way our consumer modes have sort of affected lifestyle and the way we think about ourselves with optimization and the just more economy, the more um, kind of way of being a person. Um, and and yet there have been different things that people might say, well, I don't think that's actually as popular as you're saying because there's been less trends. There's been trends to less. Uh, the minimalist movement has been mm-hmm. really popular for almost a decade now. <laughs> um, so we have a variety of ways we could take this, but maybe just sort of turning it over to you and where your interests lie at the moment. Um, where, where do you think we should start in talking about uh, our relationship to stuff? Well, I do think our relationship to stuff is changing or shifting a little bit. I will say an interesting yellow flag moment for me was November, December, um, you know, right around Thanksgiving. I went into Target to look at some of the Christmas stuff. My first married Christmas, I was like, we need to get stockings, we need to get decor. Got to get the stuff. And I mean, it had to have been, if anything, it was the first week of December and it was cleaned out. Target was cleaned out of Christmas. And um I was shocked. We, my husband and I were like picking through the leftover stockings <laughs> and we thought there's still like three weeks left. And then a few days later, went to get the Christmas tree um, and went into Home Depot and said, hey, 
where are the Christmas lights? And they said, we're out and we're not getting any more. Um, and my, you know, my first thought is, well, I guess it's supply chain. We guess we have less Christmas lights than ever before. But um, as Jordan Weisman at Vox and other um, interviewers have, or at Slate, forgive me, have said, like, we're not, we're purchasing more. We're not, um, it's not that we can't get stuff. It's that we want more stuff than we've ever wanted before. And if you, your neighborhood was anything like mine, Christmas decorations went up November 1st and there were twice as many as ever. Booming. Booming. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of a, a, that was a framework shifting article for me to read because, and he kind of makes the claim in it that because there's a perceived scarcity um, or people were worried that their Christmas presents wouldn't come in time, people bought more Christmas presents than ever before. And so that's just clogging the system even more. So those are some like things I've noticed, I think, besides the fact that obviously being home in a pandemic, um, you couldn't buy anything in the store. And so people were buying stuff online. And then I think we just somehow it's become a normalized habit for us to just um, buy, buy, buy. And I saw online somewhere that, you know, 50% of clothing is bought online now. And so because it is so easy um, and because we're dealing with so much uncertainty and other things, I think we are turning to purchasing mm. as sort of some form of therapy um, and recreation. So that's interesting because retail therapy, right? Even that, right. that phrase, it used to be like, oh, I don't know, you know, single women in their 20s or, or something like that. They do this when their hearts are broken and it's a funny thing and we make shows out of it or something. But um, is it possible <laughs> that uh, we are having a sort of global, <laughs> society-wide uh, mass uh, market retail therapy? Yeah. Um, because the way you even just describe some of that it just it immediately starts to suggest man are we buying in order to feel safe like yeah. we're we're buying out of the possibility that there might not be right whatever like i'm thinking even just just the historical uh, timeline i'm just thinking about um my grandparents generation greatest generation coming through the war years right the, the at least the second world war um it's a it's a time of austerity right their stories of when they were kids um, are at the end of the roaring 20s that I just described. And they tell stories about, you know, having to sort of uh, making sandwiches for men in their neighborhoods and in the city nearby um, to just have something to eat because everyone's out walking the streets looking for work. Mm -hmm. And so so they grow up sort of taking nothing for granted, right? They're like harvesting rubber whenever they can. And it's just a totally different way, right? I mean, right. the advent of like margarine, you know, like there's a totally different way of thinking about production and yet we have these just huge swings right to 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 an age even more recently my folks generation or being raised in the 80s talk about an era of stuff and clutter just like toys, toys. everywhere yeah. right like star wars toys like all the plastic things you know of like just 80s accumulation like the just thinking of of generationally how we react to mm -hmm. austerity um how we react to times of of nervous sort of are there going to be you know toilet paper rolls on the shelves you know right this time you know the fear that mm -hmm. maybe drives our purchasing that we would buy in order to maybe feel well mm -hmm. um you think there is something there beyond a sort of a niche kind of description of uh, what you do when you're sad um now it's sort of what we're all doing because we're 
nervous or were melancholic about how life has gone the last two years? Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, I'm in considering this topic, one of the first things that I was thinking about was the way that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount connects clothing and anxiety. You know, in his in the very famous section of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? So in this famous passage about not worrying, he's like, people worry about food and clothing. (laughs) Um, And that's sort of a primary anxiety that drives us for a lot of things. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot more to something like clothing um, has a lot more related to it than just food or, or because of the nature of it being an outward thing, an adorning thing, you know, Mm -hmm. 95% of our clothing purchases aren't practical. They're um, just, you know, ornamental. Mm -hmm. And so, but I do think he gets at something there of like, what are you spending all your time worrying about? Um, like I'm going to provide for you. And so I think that's an initial way. I just sort of view the connection of, you know, we can spend our, our days fretting about certain things. And that could be the practicality of like, I need new clothes, or it might be like, do you, re- are you really in need or do you just think you're in need? Hmm. And what's so interesting is that teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is that it's sort of an explanation of what he says even more sort of starkly right before that, which is you cannot serve both God and mammon, right? Yeah. That he links this idea of worshiping or serving money or, I mean, they wouldn't have had a lot of coin, but, but stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, resources, um, yeah. something like this. Um, you cannot serve both God and mammon, for example, right? Like if you're worrying, there's a worshiping that's being implied there that I wouldn't yeah. want to connect personally, because I think of worrying about, you know, how to make sure my family's okay and live in Orange County and <laughs> making rent and all the things, right? That seems like, oh, no, no, I'm just concerned for my family, right? And yet, what am I concerned about? I'm concerned about the things he's talking about, or food, shelter, clothing, the, you know, even just the, the basics of life. Um, so much of that is sort of a normalized worry. Sometimes I even feel like, oh, it's ennobling. Like I'm a responsible mm-hmm. right. father because I worry, or maybe I'm willing to work more, maybe even work too much in order to make sure everyone's okay, right? But Jesus talks about this as like a way of, of worshiping, a way of trusting in, right? You're, you're worrying because you imagine if you had these things or this level of resources, you would then wouldn't have to worry, right? You would rest, because you would be somehow okay, you would be well, right? Back to the idea that we are we are doing some sort of therapy in the way in which we worry or, in fact, shop, right? Especially, yeah, yeah, and the way you describe. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say, like, there is something, you know, it, different people feel differently about this, and I think there is a gender divide about it that we probably don't have time to get into but there is something about like going walking into a very well organized well ordered store and it's like calm and clean and peaceful and it's just like oh mm. this is nice i mean to to sort of build off of james k a smith's um like there's a there's the liturgy of the mall yeah and you walk in and you're like it is nice here and there's nice music and things are pretty and so there is a part of it that is sort of calming in a sense of like, I have left the chaos of out there and now I am in this place. And so I understand the retail therapy part of it in that regard. 
Um, it's a little bit more complicated when we're talking about online shopping, I think, because there's, mm-hmm. uh, to me, it, it does not connotate any of that sort of like, I'm having a nice experience. Um, online shopping to me, I always just feel a little panicked or like, I've got to move quick or something. <laughs> um, but that probably says more about me. But uh, yeah, so I think they're, they're in that regard of like the in-person experience. But what's interesting is that when we were unable to have an in-person experience, people bought more than ever, um, which to me is kind of a conundrum. But I do think it goes down to like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else I can control. I don't know what else... Mm. Um, you know, like, what if there is scarcity? But I, I, yeah, interesting cultural trends that are very of the moment. Well, and maybe, I mean, this is at least, this certainly was true of, of sort of much of the Roaring Twenties, but, um, you know, it, it belied that there was an emptiness underneath, right? right? That there was a, it wasn't just like, we're spending a lot of money. It's like, well, we're lacking a lot of meaning, Right. And, and there's an attempt to to fill those holes, to like stuff those holes with cash yeah. or with objects um, because there isn't a thick meaning to much mm-hmm. of life. And that and that those periods of, of, of pandemic, of you know war right. um, bring to the very surface. Right. Our mortality and the most sort of it takes all the buffering away from what it means to just be a person. Uh, and we've noted this before i think in other places but um the impact it's had on marriages the impact it's had on families the impact it's had uh, the work migration right everyone's leaving jobs trying something different reassessing their life reassessing we've talked about reassessing their friendships reassessing their relationships everything's kind of down to the bone and people are realizing um in many cases that there's just there's not a lot of meaning in in life and maybe one way to either try to to make meaning or maybe to distract us from mm-hmm. that lack is is to is to click or is yeah. to is to go and look around is mm-hmm. to um, imagine you know uh, through these other things right um, maybe more shiny sort of busyness than we feel is actually present or mm-hmm. there has to be some connection there uh, coming out yeah. of that sort of staring into a void and then being like i need to go shopping <laughs> like it's not <laughs> like what i see in that yeah. void <laughs> yeah i think yeah there is i think it, this sort of correlates to another part of it which i think is the identity question you know when you pick a brand um mm. you're really picking some sort of identity or you're trying to create an identity marker so in a time when you know you're Maybe you're not as social as you wanted to be, or your job is not in person, or whatever. Um, you can be tempted by by a brand identity, and this is not new. This is not pandemic stuff. But you know, I am a person who buys Yeti products and like has the Yeti sticker, and like I'm outdoorsy, and that's what I'm. Patagonia. Patagonia. I'm Lululemon. I'm whatever. Um, the brand is of like this is. I'm a part of this community, a part mm. of this crew, and it's... Um, it's an atmosphere. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. It's, it's more than a thing. And so when everything else is sort of insecure or uncertain, um, and I'm not actually quite sure who I am or what I'm doing, mm. um, they, the brands have done an amazing job at creating a sense of like, if you buy our brand, you're this kind of person, and then you can latch onto it um, and just sort of connect 
And I mean, we see this in all kinds of things. It's the same as with a sports team or something like that, but it's just an external thing that we can say like, oh, this is who I am when I'm uncertain of what I am. It's such a brilliant connection to make because the, you know, the, the boom in advertising in the 20, 1920s, um, it was unprecedented that people would literally have just companies that were devoted to, you yeah. know, a, a one minute radio spot or, a, you know, a single print page ad. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they saw that this was the power of creating desire. And in our own time, the branding of everything, right, of, of people, mm-hmm. right, the the online nature of our personas and our performances has meant that, you know, the sophistication of advertising in our own time has latched onto the fact that people do need meaning and so a brand must be a story and it must be a, yeah. it must be an identity it must be a world mm-hmm. um, and it, and it's so good that you mentioned the sports thing because that used to be uh, maybe like the lead way of having adults have this sort of proxy identity with sports teams and yet sports teams eventually realized they were way behind Mm-hmm. Um, advertising industry stuff and needed to hire those people so that your you know love of Manchester United or, or whatever or the, the Lakers was who you were and, mm-hmm. and it, not just sort of a cool thing your family did and shared some memories together but like you were part of this global community of Laker fans mm-hmm. or whatever it was right they yeah. had to like catch up to that right mm-hmm. they had to like they realized how effective uh, advertising had become by creating identities and worlds and stories uh, not just things. Like it didn't matter if you had this jersey or that jersey. It was that you were a Laker fan. It was that you were this kind of person, right? The the other day at work, I was trying to explain to our coworker who is from England what the Raiders are and like what they mean. <laughs> what they mean. What they. It's yeah. not like if you're a Raiders fan, it means something. Like yeah, you have there is an identity. <laughs> and I was like, I don't I don't know how to explain it. In the same way that like you're a Yankees fan, there's a there's a it's different than being a Red Sox fan. Yeah. And I don't know how to articulate that, but if you're here, you know. You know. And I think there's the same thing that happens. I mean, I will feel childish talking about this because all I know is what my, my students wear. But, um, like, there's the brands my students will choose, like, and it they're trying to make it say something about them broadly. Right. Um, and, like, trying to understand who they are and what they're about because of this identity marker. And then when you see somebody on the street wearing that brand, you're like, oh, they're cool. They have that mm-hmm. brand on. And what's interesting is those brands, like especially like the Supreme phenomenon amongst our students. Oh, my gosh. What they started, what you realized they were doing was these, these companies were creating uh, scarcity, right? Yeah. In like their sweatshirts, which are the, I mean, no offense, my students that are listening to this, but are usually like the ugliest, simplest things with this dumb, literally like, rectangle supreme like yeah. word just right. on it right mm-hmm. but they knew what i didn't know which was oh there's only 300 of them yeah right they it created this this scarcity created this demand and so that if you saw someone wearing them everybody knew mm-hmm. oh well that's almost impossible to find that um you know those are jordans right there's only a few that were made in this right. window of time so when you see it you know you are now in the era of conspicuous consumption at a level that you and I are like catching up to because it's also connected to their online lives in which they are buying and selling these products as teenagers and sort of, I mean, some of them have like almost full-time job money because they're really good at, at sort of, you know, getting to the window before the product sells out in a minute and a half yeah, and then reselling those things. (laughs) It's just like extraordinary sort of, like you said, the, the value being put on a brand identity that's connected to a 
artificial scarcity, right? They could easily mm-hmm. make more, but then that would lead to this horrible thing called brand dilution, right? Oof. And you wouldn't want you wouldn't want poor people walking around in your clothes. So you have to have this like, you know, this this kind of hook, right? You have to have this story that elite, rare, scarce you. You're different, right? You're whatever. I mean, even to be fair, it's the same with like an Apple product, right? Why why are you right. spending four or five hundred dollars more for every phone? Um, or every laptop or every mm-hmm. whatever, when you could get the same basic functionality out of, you know, whatever, it's because it's beautiful and it's, and it does everything right and you don't have to worry and it's mm-hmm. just elegant and the way the box that it comes in is just so perfectly designed. And, and that is that aesthetic of minimalism that actually encourages maximalism, right? Right. Well, I don't know. I don't know if David Woods would want to keep this in the, in the pod, <laughs> but he brought it up. Uh, so David Woods recently traded in his iPhone oh, for not soul. an iPhone. And it has been quite a topic of discussion. In, in every in every community I'm a part of. <laughs> and, but he, so every time the green bubble pops up, uh, a, a new friend is like, wait, why is this green? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? And David Woods said to me, and I quote, it was $500 less. It was a Christian decision. <laughs> It was a Christian decision. I'm, I'm sticking to that. And I, but I want to know what you mean by that. Like, why Why in that moment was it worth it for you? Um, why would Why would you call that a Christian decision? Yeah. <laughs> to not be brand loyal. Right. To try to defend myself. Um, well, okay, look. I'm, I'm not single. It's harder to justify um, the kinds of... Uh, outlays of cash I may have once been happy to participate in when it was just me and no one was looking and I wasn't sharing a bank account with any other Ooh, human being. No one looking. Okay, no one looking. Uh, so now I'm not just sharing a bank account, but like we're trying to budget. We're trying to actually figure out how, you know, are we going to have our kids in private school? Well, how could we possibly afford that? Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, every dollar kind of has to <laughs> kind of have to answer for it you know like and and if and if the lord has called us to a place like orange county in which you know we're probably never going to own a home but we're going to still have to rent and still have to figure out how to how to live here uh it means we're going to have to figure out how to do better with money and do better with sacrificing things that we may have gotten used to or normalized for ourselves without looking too closely at it and that was just one of those moments which i i, I wanted the new iphone and and i'm standing there at this kiosk and the guy's like, this is the deal on the one right next to it. Um, and I'm like, is there going to be a deal on the one? And they're like, you know, Apple doesn't really do deals, right? And I'm like, oh, right, right. Because uh, it's a lifestyle, right? It's <laughs> so a, yeah. you can't discount a lifestyle. No. Um, and so I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, okay, I know this thing is great for whatever I need. It's going to drive everyone nuts when those blue bubble text messages turn green and they're going to want to burn the world down um, and, and, and whatever. And I knew it. The very first text that started to come through, hey, man, is everything okay? What's Ooh. happening here? Something went wrong. Are you, did you lose your phone? You know, <laughs> this reaction. Because and surely so, this was not a choice. And so I had to literally just, I had to be like, okay, it was $450 less, $450 less, $450 less. I, I love the phone. It's fantastic. It's, and it's, a, it's not some like... It's not like, oh, I, I'm some monk, you know, doing this. This is like a high-end phone. It just was on a great discount. It was just on a great discount. Yeah. And and I was like faced with that like, before God. I could not justify not saving $450. That was It was as simple as that. But it felt like the accountability of being a husband and a father and knowing that there are other people who are going to look at my – are going to ask me, like, mm-hmm. how much does that cost? 
Oof. Yeah. And having to answer that question, suddenly it's just different when, mm-hmm. when your purchases are connected to people. Um, and you're not the only people because we have an incredible ability to justify whatever we want to justify for ourselves. But trying to tell a grown adult who happens to be your wife, you know, that's not going to sell. Right? It literally is just it's just going to sound as ridiculous as it is. Yeah. She'd be like, you didn't need that. And I'm going to have nothing to say. Yeah. I'm going to be like, you're right. And yet we're wondering if the kids can go to private school. So, you know, like it was one of those moments where I was like, <laughs> and yeah, I'm going to spin it and, you know, and, and use that to try to fight people back. But but it was as simple as that. And it was scary as that. No, because it, it brings up you bring up a few interesting points that I, I want to dive into in this discussion. First, you mentioned the term conspicuous consumption, which mm. we can dive into. And then this idea of people looking, people watching, people watching um you like wear the item or have the item but then also the really interesting part of the internet is that nobody's watching you shop i mean the digital overlords are but like nobody can see you shop you don't have to interact with the human being to buy this absurd thing and so we'll be more prone to it so i kind of want to talk about that like the visibility factor of why we're driven to buy 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 um I think for those who are unfamiliar with the term conspicuous consumption, it also plays into sort of the historical era you were talking about. What is this guy's econo- economist and sociologist Thorstein Veblen? There's I'm prob- name. probably mispronouncing it, but um, he talks about conspicuous consumption as the idea of purchasing something not just for what it does, but for how it makes you appear, not just the serviceability of the good but the honorific aspect. So the example would be you drive a luxury car. Um, a non-luxury car would get the job done just as easily, but it needs to be the Lexus or the Audi or the Tesla or the whatever um, to display your status in society. Um, and so I think that that idea is a huge part of why we purchase, you know, the shame of being seen in last year's things mm-hmm. um, because we, with so much of our identity is based in how are we being up to date? Are we, are we with the newest best thing? Um, and are we with something that is associated with the right brand identity? And I would say conspicuous consumption, which is a phenomenal term, by the way, that should just be yeah. everyone's term. Yeah. Um, Look at me consumption, right? Look at me buying. Um, it's easy to think that's other people, right? Because <laughs> like, I don't, you know, like, and I, I genuinely don't have like conscious thought. If I if I had gotten a new iPhone, I wouldn't have been like, this is so that all oh, the people can see that. Oh, I yeah. Have. Okay, but here's the deal. It's because we're so far downstream where to maintain the status quo normal in your life, you can't step down. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, it was like, I, you know, I'm in this place and then this is a little step down from that place. It wasn't like I need to keep performing this. That, that's not I think many people's actual mentality isn't I want people to see what I'm driving. It's more like I am in a world like I bought into a world or I think of mm-hmm. myself in a world. Mm-hmm. I can't get out of that world. I can't drop down from the level I'm at. Um, by opting out of, you know, the features of that world. This is my my normal, even if it should never have been normal. Um, I am used to spending $1,500, $1,200 on a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to maintain what I set as normal and what we all agreed to say is just normal, right? Everybody mm-hmm. should have this. Um, and so now to just 
kind of keep up with, right? Um, what I think is sort of my status quo or, or just life and its conveniences, right? Like you shouldn't have to have a grainy video of your kids, you know? You should have the perfect smooth, you know, like the, you should have all of the apple walled garden kind of, you know, smoothing out of everything because you, don't, you shouldn't have any inconvenience. You just shouldn't have that, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're not used to that. Don't step down into inconvenience. So I think sometimes we think conspicuous consumption is just for people who are like trying hard right. to be loved or be impressive or something. And I think a lot of times it's, it's to maintain a level of convenience and enjoyment in the thingness of life that we've already justified mm-hmm. a long time ago to ourselves. And then when you don't get the iPhone, then you actually become more... Uh conspicuous than ever before <laughs> yeah right because that's so true yeah because it, everybody's just sort of like he didn't do the thing he yeah. didn't do the thing um yeah i think that that is a really good point of just the way that we are we have so normalized specific um behaviors and just sort of i because i i would never think of myself you know engaging in the process but of course i do of course i i buy things for what other people think you know and then sometimes there's the you can have the moment of like, why did I purchase this? I don't actually want this. Or you just have them, you like will yourself to love it and like it and normalize it. Um, and we do this all the time with various fashion trends and, and you know, I think at, teaching at a high school, David and I often look at what our students wear and think, what? <laughs> um, do you like that? Or is it because other people are buying that? Right. And, but there is a conspicuous nature of it of like, I have to buy these Cargo pants, which are back in style, if you don't know. Amazing. Cargo pants for men and women. Um, I have to buy these because that's what we're doing. Um, and then the, But to the individual person would just say, like, I just need new pants. But then it's done for, for a reason of being a part of a community, even if it's not incredibly intentional. Mm-hmm. I have to say, just before we move past it, when one of my students uh, <laughs> uh, saw my, my, my phone, my Samsung, you know, mm-hmm. She goes, is that a Samsung? And before I could say yes, she goes, wow, that's a red flag. Ooh. <laughs> that's a red flag. And, yeah. and it was, and it was, you know, it was a joke, not joke, whatever. But it was like something's wrong with a person in her peer group <laughs> that opts yeah. out, right? Like something, and, yeah. you know, she was like, oh, just so you know, that's a red flag. Like, <laughs> Yeah. That's a powerful thing to start like, like. Dang. And I'm like supposed to be beyond the reach of that. But, you know, a teenager can embarrass you real quick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And well, just the idea that like, I don't know, you could be ostracized for purchasing or not purchasing is wild. That is wild. Like that, that this is, that that we're this deep in and that a brand is so, I don't know, pervasive that not having it is strange is, is interesting. And yet we still want it. Like you think, you'd think it'd be the Apple brand would be diluted by now, but it ain't. It ain't. And I don't know why. I know it is. It's interesting. We've, we've, Middle America normalized luxury, right? We normalized yeah. uh, spending on certain things that is just astronomical compared to anything you would need to have spent or used to live without quite easily. Mm. Um, yeah, we've we've all sort of agreed, you know, somehow tacitly to move forward, continuing to buy ourselves new things every year, uh, even when the old things still work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so okay, so we have this thing, but we also have pushback, don't we? Mm-hmm. We have, let's just talk about minimalism for a second. We have yeah. this idea that, wow, you don't need all this stuff. We have Marie Kondo telling us, pick up every object in your home and ask, do you spark joy? 
you know, in my life, right? Talk to your things. And if they don't spark joy, throw them away or, or get rid of them or put, mm-hmm. them, put them somewhere. Uh, and then if you, if you don't need them in a month or whatever, then you take the box out. Um, so then there's this huge minimalist movement, right, that rolls through. And people are like, man, I got too much stuff. This is crazy. Uh, you know, my whole life had just been on just nonsense. This clutter. Uh, in the world of sort of children, raising children, um, yeah. we call that stuff twaddle. Um, it's like, it's the kind of stuff that every grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle buys at Christmas time. It's made of plastic. It breaks in a day and a half if it lasts that long. Or it's like a book, you know, about like superheroes that is just written by a computer somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and really is just to get them so that next time they're in the target, they, they want the superhero costume, right? Mm-hmm. It's just part of this whole machine, but it's just, it's just empty calories, just twaddle, yeah. right? Okay. So the minimalist movement was like, oh, hey, adults have a lot of twaddle, right? Adults have a lot of non nonsense stuff that we just buy uh, and we don't need it and we don't use it and if we do it's not well made because we just we just keep replacing it or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's this huge pushback and and this hit especially at a time in which you know we were raising up young kids and so it was like oh like coming out of being 80s kids with a lot of stuff it was like this is a cleansing reaction to crowded homes <laughs> yeah you know like thinking of like my my grandparents home or like you know wherever just things are everywhere you know it's just a lot of stuff and so for like younger folks this different generation was like less is more like let's let's purge right mm-hmm. um did you get in on the minimalist thing is, um i'm really intrigued and attracted to it i think i am by nature um I'm a bit more of a maximalist. I So I'm always trying to keep that in check, though. I enjoy a minimalist aesthetic, but I think that's that's what it's become, right? It's become an aesthetic, and it's not really about um, spending any less. It's just about, like, spending the same or more but on fewer things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it definitely is attractive to me. Um, and I desire it, but the things I love are things like books, which I just like have too much emotional connection to. So then I don't throw them away. And, and, um, yeah, so I think, but I, I completely, I watched, I read the Marie Kondo book, watched the Marie Kondo show, loved it. We love to watch a show like Hoarders where they like clean it out and purge. And, um, and I think there's something in, in all of us that wants to do that. And I, I mean, I know from anecdotal experience from plenty of people that during the pandemic, everybody was like, purge, purge. We did it at my parents' house. We went through the garage multiple times and like trying to get rid of some of the things that have just been building and building. Um, And there's a lot of Christian talk about simplicity and minimalism now, which I am at one point. Uh, on one end really attracted to and then on the other end I see how it's just a conversation that's really coming from uh, a position of privilege and could very well quick very quickly become about aesthetic about being a conspicuous minimalist Mm. Um, Instagram Instagram minimalism yeah Instagram worthy minimalist but it's so funny because you know this that whole minimalism aesthetic really butts up against the idea of social media, because like if you're a true minimalist and you have this capsule wardrobe, you know, with like 20 items in it, then you can't do outfit of the day on Instagram every day, you know, like because it's the same. Though some people do do make a living out of that as well. But it, it's it's these sort of two desires really come up with each other. So if you're if you're a minimalist influencer, 
um, how do you keep creating new content, you know? So uh, that's, I have a lot of thoughts about it in terms of the way that minimalism can be really healthy for the soul, um, but then in the way that it can just replace Nike with mm. minimalism or something. Mm. I asked my, my wife about this because, you know, she she got into the minimalist thing and she had some, I just thought, really perceptive comments because it's not new now, right? It's mm -hmm. been several years. And she said it was so linked to her motherhood, right? There's that that just uh, new mother, young kids, close together. It, life is overwhelming. You know, food is everywhere. You know, things are everywhere because of the nature of children and whatever. So to be able to have a, a way of approaching space that kept it as simple as possible. Um, and again, uh, the opposite of maybe the environments that, you know, the 80s kids, you know, I'd have grown up in with a lot more kind of crowded spaces. Um, she really latched onto it and, and it became, but she said this, she goes, it became a way of like, it became a way of seeing the things that you have or the space you're in and looking at it a little more intentionally. But she realized after a little while that it, it was, it was a, like a, a method. It wasn't like a place to stay. So it wasn't so so she said for example in all the minimalist stuff that was gaining traction it was it was always tied to this idea of like self discovery mm -hmm. and self optimization mm -hmm. the kinds of things you and I have talked about it was tied to more you less stuff more you more yeah. time more leisure more wellness more you know whatever more, more attention to your inner life or something um and she and she felt like after a little while she said it was devoid of of meaning it like you cleared out all these things but she's like but but we still need meaning we still want meaningful things in our life we still want our environments to be meaningful and so the place i think where she's at now is she's she's asking a different question um, which is, do these things have meaning? Not, do we have too many things? Uh, which mm -hmm. is kind of what you're saying. It became a new aesthetic, and yeah. and and it became a new aesthetic in in not just in like ordinary homes or whatever, but it became like a an aesthetic, global aesthetic. Right. Became uh, the the one of the articles that that we were looking at is it Chiquet that wrote this? Um, the description of this aesthetic was the description of the non-place. It was mm. the generic city um, mm -hmm. where you could be anywhere in the world and not know where you were because every computer cafe or yeah. or, or cafe looks the <laughs> same, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, white table, white lamp hanging from a single white, you know, beautiful cord from the white ceiling, right? Very pleasing, very calming, very therapeutic in the way you're even describing sort of going to stores, right? Yes. It became this aesthetic, but it was a placeless aesthetic. It was, it was devoid of identifiable, where are we? <laughs> what yeah. is happening here? Um, and the idea, at least it seemed, was, well, you are happening here, right? Mm -hmm. And you're and you're discovering you. And yet, yeah, you know, any Christian knows this. There's not a lot to find <laughs> deep inside, right? Like the the meaning yeah. that our lives, you know, have comes from the Lord. Like if you're just mm -hmm. plumbing the depths of what you feel, it's sort of just sad or embarrassing how you feel a lot of times or how shallow you, some of your thoughts are or whatever it might be. Self-discovery is not sort of a, a Christian adventure in that way as being sort of the, the, the navel gazing in order to get there. Self-discovery right. is, you know, through 
obedience to Jesus, right? It's the, mm-hmm. it's the reverse of maybe the world's narrative of how you find who you are. You lose who you are to yeah. Christ, right? Yeah. And so it became like this, oh, wait, she she could feel this. She was like, it's just, they just keep talking about self-discovery and there's nothing there. Right. There's nothing to discover except that I have a cleaner house right. and a lot more white space. <laughs> I have discovered I have a very clean garage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think, I think that is a huge component, especially when you think about you know, the substance of life being our commitment to Christ, to his church, you know, and our commitments to relationships and marriages, like that's the, that's the good stuff. Um, and so I'm, cause I think that also is part of the minimalist aesthetic is trying to get rid of attachments. Like you try to get rid of attachment to items and then also, um, to minimize your attachment to people as well mm. in the process, because people come with junk and stuff and you can't have kids without a closet full of junk. Like it's just, I don't, especially if they're growing and changing. And, um, so like, there's no, there's no house that doesn't have children's house. that doesn't have like a pile of shoes at the door. It's just not really an option. Um, and so I think that there does have to be a certain amount of like, you know what, this is, these are the things I've committed to and, um, finding that balance of, of not just making it a new search for meaning in how you purchase or don't purchase. Right. Right. The economics, that mammon is never going to give you meaning, right? Yeah. However you approach <laughs> that particular right. God, right? It's it's not, that's not where it's found. The, 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 the treasure is meant to be in heaven. I mean, that's literally the same passage, right? Mm-hmm. In the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount. I mean, he's just come off of saying where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And don't worry about stuff, you know, because, and it also means don't worry about getting it right. You know, like don't worry about having to dial it in so that, Oh, when people come over, they see, I'm like, you know, really, I got the right aesthetic going and I have the, you know, whatever the modern furniture is. We all have our versions of doing this is certainly not just sort of young people, right? That used to be the stereotype. It's all of us, right? We're professional consumers. And I wanted to say like, this happens even on the, uh, minimalist or like eco-friendly side of it, because so I, try to be a conscious clothing consumer buyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I buy a lot of things secondhand. Um, but that can become its own its own addiction, right? Like you could go to a thrift store every day and there's going to be all new stuff in there. So you got to check it out every day to see what's there. Or I uh, recently bought a few things off of the website Poshmark where you can buy, you know, secondhand items. People can resell things. And so it's framed as this really like eco-friendly sort of um, anti-consumerist thing. But I actually had to delete the app off of my phone because it would just keep populating new things I could buy every minute. Um, and now even down here in Newport, there's a brand new store um, for selling, for reselling label luxury. Like, so you can buy your thousand dollar coat for $800 because it's secondhand. So like there's, we and try feel ethical in yes. doing it, right? That becomes the yes. new way of justifying. So we, we, but that's still an attempt to sort of find that meaning and find that identity. And, and, um, so there's pitfalls on either side. It's this, again, the conversation is not just about people who spend too much on shoes, a uh, new pair of this or the brand new that or the car or whatever. Like there's, it can sneak in, in surprising ways. And it does really require like a vigilance of, always asking yourself, why am I buying this thing that I'm buying right now? Do I actually need it? Or have I, am I trying to soothe some anxiety? Have I convinced myself I need uh, this for another reason? Am I trying to impress someone? Um, Am I feeling insecure about something? And having to go through that process 
in small ways will really change how you kind of see the trends that are happening around you. There's this incredible book by a theologian who I love named William Cavanaugh. Catholic theologian writes very accessibly, though, and even though he's, I mean, his dissertation and that kind of stuff is extraordinary, but he's he's written much more accessible, sort of shorter books on certain things, and one of his best that I recommend anybody look for or look up is a book called Being Consumed, mm. uh, written in 2008, which is a pretty timely moment to have written that, given that we, shortly after it came out, you know, you write books years before they happen to be published a couple mm-hmm. years later, and then, of course, we went to an economics recession, the likes of which we hadn't seen in a long time. Um, so this idea in being consumed is broken up into four or five chapters with these sort of like um, these pairings of freedom, unfreedom. And he talks mm. about the free market. Is the free market free? Well, what do you mean by free? What does it do to the people who are producing and you know are living unlivable, sort of unsustainable wages and the two-thirds world, all that stuff, which some of us are familiar with. We're all probably familiar with. There's Netflix documentaries on everything if you, if you want to know, right? Fast fashion, the true cost documentary on Netflix, mm-hmm. these kind of things. You know, hard to watch those and try to forget about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the one of the pairings that he tackles is attachment and detachment. And he says, in a truly consumer society, everything is based on detachment, right? Mm-hmm. That you are not attached to anything in particular, and so you're always ready to get more. Mm-hmm. Because if you were attached, you wouldn't have space or interest in another one of these kinds of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That what they do is they cultivate um, a spirit of detachment where you can just blithely kind of move through an ocean of things because you're not attached to any one of them. You may even use that as a justification of why you can buy more things is because you you don't need to hold on to things because you're not attached to to empty Mm -hmm. products, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he and he describes it as the way of reassessing our purchasing is to decide what we want to be attached to. And by this point in the book, he's obviously described how markets work and the people that we don't see who make mm-hmm. the things that we actually are buying and how they're treated and that kind of thing. And so it has this ethical move, but it also makes it a much more intentional thing rather than saying, well, these companies are ethical. And so I'm going to buy more stuff from them. Um, it, the question becomes, what do you want to be attached to? Or the way that Lisa phrased it was more like what, I don't know how she phrased it exactly, but it was, it was not being minimalist for the sake of being minimalist. It was saying, what meaning do I want in my home? Like mm-hmm. almost like looking at the things we buy and say, like, what story does this tell? Like mm-hmm. if we just said, what story does this tell? Does this tell a story of exploitation somewhere in the two thirds world with people I'll never meet? Uh, that's not good. <laughs> you know, does this tell a story of I'm uh, depressed right now and I just want to buy something? Um, what story does this tell? What, what meaning does this have? And so choosing a handful of attachments, choosing a handful of things that are worth having. Um, my grandfather's passed away many, many years ago, uh, Richard. Um, he didn't have a cluttered house, but he had really interesting things. Mm. He was an antiques uh, guy. He was uh, a coin guy. He was this kind of thing. He didn't end up buying that many things, but the things he had were incredibly interesting. And he made a point that the things he had, he would tell me, he goes, I, I, I just love the journey. And what he meant was he would bring something home that he knew a little bit about, mm-hmm. and he would spend forever, days, sometimes weeks, months, sometimes years, researching where did this come from? Mm-hmm. How was it made? What was it used for? Um, and so he would only collect some things, 
but he would like be so interested in the places they came from, why they were made in the first place, who had made them, and trying to see if he could figure it out, like if he could put the story together. And I inherited like two or three things from him. And the kind of things that if you're passing by, you're like, I don't know where I would put that. Yeah. I think that's probably what we said when I brought it home. It's like, where are we gonna, where am I gonna put that? Because <laughs> it doesn't match anything. It doesn't have, it doesn't have any. No. You know, it's it's from somewhere like you know, 19th century, you know, Japan or something, and and it's incredible when you like yeah. look at it. But you don't, it doesn't go with anything, and so, and so it's so in my my desk space area in the garage, I have you know this incredible elaborate sort of marble carving of this entire sort of village with trees and everything uh, on this like wood base. It's maybe two feet across. Um, and it is, to me, it's like magical. It's like unbelievable. Right. Um, and if my kids look at it, they're like, oh, what's this? What's that? Mm-hmm. Next to it is this like, um, is this boat that's actually a music box with a ballerina inside. Magic. This old wooden carving and it's magic. And my kids will like, you know, like hear the song and they'll turn the thing and and it's delicate, you know, you could easily, you know, hurt it or whatever. Um, but I have like two or three of these things. And I look at these things, I'm like, Richard, mm-hmm. like Richard and the home and the conversations we would have about his interest in people, in places, in, you know, East Asian mm-hmm. countries, in, uh, you know, the ivory trade. He had, mm-hmm. Like you'd find these Netskis, these really, uh, really sort of high valued carvings in ivory of these little figures. And he's like, oh man, if you find a Netski, I mean, it's just, he knew, he knew how they were made, mm-hmm. when they were mm-hmm. made, why it was illegal to even trade them anymore <laughs> because of the ivory thing. Right. Um, you know, he was just so interested and yet it was not a lot of stuff because he only had time to track down the stories for a handful of things to be mm-hmm. invested in, even mm-hmm. as just sort of a collector person. Now, I know a lot of people are not collectors or wouldn't know whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like thinking of our kids, like, I don't want to buy five books. I want to buy a good book, right? Mm-hmm. A book that they would want to have and read to their kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to buy, you know, like I, I want, I, but we want the book. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like we want things that have real value that have meaning, that have a story, that is a world that we want to invest in or something like this. And it's so easy to just be like, get this. This is cheaper. This is cheaper. Mm-hmm. You could get more of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. It seems like it might distract them longer <laughs> or whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of chastened by that idea that um, what story does this tell and being interested in in the story yeah. of things and um, and having ways of finding your way to be connected to people through the things that we buy mm-hmm. to accept that you can. Um, yeah. What do you think of that? Well, and you, you bring up, I mean, a good point that we can't even hardly scratch the surface in and we can recommend all kinds of resources, but like, yeah, the, the toxic nature of like fast fashion for human beings and for the environment, right? Like there is, the like hundreds of gallons of water that go into making a single dress sort of, you know, like those sort of things are slave labor in the supply chain. Like we aren't even getting into that. There are so many books, so many documentaries, so many podcasts. Um, the, but the point being that we need to understand that how we buy actually involves people in some way, shape or form. And in the ways that it doesn't involve people, it actually is affecting them as well. So like the idea of 3D printing is an amazing miracle of technological advancement, but then also like, okay, so now we just, you know, 
did somebody lose their job for that to happen? Hmm. You know, Wendell Berry famously wrote this essay years ago uh, called Why I'm, I'm Not Going to Buy a Computer. Um, it was 1987, and he's never bought a computer. And um, he got a little, a lot of heat from it because he, in it, he talks about like, I have a typewriter from 1956, and I handwrite on paper, and then I give it to my wife, and we have a conversation, and she is my typer, and she like sort of edits and types as I go. And people got all upset, like, you're, so your wife's your slave? What are you saying? He's like, first of all. My wife finds amazing fulfillment in the work that she does, and she's great at it. Um, and like second, that I don't want to lose this connection we have. In me buying a computer, I would lose her. Like if I start writing on a computer, I lose a relationship in, in the creating of my novels and the creating of my essays. And I think that's a really profound idea of like in in the way we purchase, are we... Does is it affecting the community in any way? Like, is it affecting community stability? Um, is it affecting the environment? Is it affecting justice? Like, how, how is what we are doing affecting human beings? And I think one of the dangers of shopping on the internet is that we can uh, completely distance ourselves from, like, I don't even have to interact with the person at the store. So um, if I return a pair of pants to the store, at least that I know, like, in some small way, I'm inconveniencing this woman in front of me as she has to like do the return and process my credit card and whatever again. But in the in the online world of like buying online and returning, I don't have to interact with a single person. Like I can print out the shipping label at home and stick it on a bag and like never even have to interact with someone at the post office, right? And uh, Amanda Mole from The Atlantic has done a lot of work on this and I'd recommend her article called Unhappy Returns. But like the amount of stuff that we return that's literally just thrown away um this is 25 percent by some estimates 25 percent of returns are just everything tossed. return is literally just into garbage which is why sometimes when you get something wrong from amazon and you you go to return it and they say just keep it yeah like that saves them money <laughs> just keep it yeah um but the like there's literally people affected in the process and that my i mean this by estimates in the 1950s if you bought a nine dollar dress that would be 72 dollars today and how often are people buying like a regular item for 72 bucks like that's a pretty for me as like an average joe 72 dollar purchase is like something significant i could go to forever 21 and get a 10 dollar dress a 20 dollar dress and do it but like we can't act like wow things are just amazing now things are so much cheaper like there's a reason that the it doesn't cost me $72 to buy a basic dress anymore. And it's because um, it's not being made by people who are treated well, or it's being made with bad products, or it's being, you know, the, the chain is different. And I think we have to think about people and um, the image of God when we purchase things, especially as you're talking about your grandfather wanting to purchase good things and beautiful things and lasting things that have a story and have some sort of connection to something. Um, we can't just pretend that our buying habits don't affect any actual person because they do. Um, what we buy or don't buy. It's interesting because the, you know, Amazonification of our world, um, it did trick us into thinking things are just cheaper you yeah. know, now. Um, and yet Amazon's strategy for years was to intentionally lose money to buy brand loyalty mm-hmm. to make it impossible for you to leave. So so when you opt out of like Prime, 
you're just like, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't know if I can wait five days for something, right? Yeah. Um, like it really became disturbing, especially during the pandemic, right? The joke mm-hmm. was, you know, everyone's every day out the window. Who's this? Who's he stopping for today? Oh, all of us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but they literally intentionally lost money to take your service from um, stores to them. Um, because you were so amazed that you were saving a dollar fifty on every single little click, um, that they were happy to lose money because they were buying you, mm-hmm. um, and that in in buying you and buying your data and buying your attention, buying however you want to you know frame it, um, they they bought you, they bought us, and then they and then they normalized something that as you're saying. Is, has never been real, right? We right. finally, last few years, have become much more aware of Amazon workers <laughs> and mm-hmm. Amazon factories and Amazon, you know, warehouses and stuff like that. And whether or not they have health care or whether or not they're allowed to unionize to actually argue for anything. Yeah, or, whether, or not allowed they're, whether or not they're allowed to use the bathroom. Right, for the- example. <laughs> especially during the pandemic, right? It was yeah. like, oh my gosh, um, guess who's taking the brunt of this? It's all those the people we don't see in the, in the mm-hmm. Amazon, you know, warehouse. Um, but they had already bought us. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, I can't go back to a world in which I am spending, you know, two or three dollars more for everything um, just because, especially if I, uh, you know, am still clicking. Right. It's like, OK, maybe for the the feeling of going to a store or trying something on or having a day at the mall, I could justify spending a little bit more because it's more of an experience. But I certainly couldn't buy it online from another from anyone else because mm-hmm. this is the magical price and the magical delivery system. Um, and so in that way they, they won. Right. And then by the time they had enough, you know, we're talking millions and millions of customers, then they started to be able to hit a profit. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they still largely profit off of AWS, like some of their, their web services. Right. Mm -hmm. They actually profit other ways and they continue to make us feel like things actually cost less, even though they don't because of their pricing model and their advertising model and their customer model. Right. Um, so they've changed the world in that way. And they've changed the way we think about things and about the time things take, um, and about, yeah, about the who's and the, and the Mm -hmm. who nots. Right. Um, so just because we're bringing this up and everybody listening does this, um, do you think it's, (laughs) oh, wow. Okay. Well, okay. So we, we opted out of Amazon. Um, oh, so did we. Okay, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, I believe we may have opted back in for uh, an, an emergency purchase or two. But the problem was that means we're back in because they don't sell, I think, monthly prime. They sell yearly Ooh, prime. Yeah. So that I think I think I have no ground to stand yeah. on anymore. Um, yeah. I opted out. I started buying books from Thrift Books. I started buying books from Abe Books, which, by the way, bookshop.org. I, I love these places mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. lovely and they're, they're, I don't know. This just feels a little different and uh, feels a little more, it uh, feels a little less crazy. Now, yeah. I'm sure it could get there too and I got to be careful. Um, but it really was weird. It was like, oh, I'm going to wait a week or two to see yeah. the thing I just clicked yeah. on. Um, it took some months to get used to. It sounds like we're going to have to re get used to it. Um, I want to say it was some justified emergency child I'm expense. Sure. I'm sure. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm confessing right now, I, just so we can deal with so it. So, by no means a saint. Like, I still buy from Target. I don't know how much better that is. But, like, um, but yeah, we actually just opted out of Amazon Prime a few weeks ago, too. My husband canceled the account because, yeah, it was like, I don't know. We missed, we, we the reality of people's life and work um 
stores closing. I mean, we, they took our bookstores and they stink in open bookstores. Amazon opens physical bookstores now, which is just like so insulting. Real, real slap in the face. <laughs> um, and and uh, so, yeah, we have opted out um, by no means saints because I still will purchase things I that are uh, in quote unquote fast fashion. And But I think the, the heart of it is that like, how, how are you intending? Like, what's the goal? Do we have a motive behind what we're doing? And um, when you're spending money, like, are you at least thinking about it? If you're buying the thing that's sort of like cheaply made or badly made, like, does it even cross your mind? And and if you're someone who's like, no, it honestly hasn't even crossed my mind. Well, then like, that's the place to start is just thinking through like, ooh, is this purchase, do I need this purchase in a day or two? Is it fine if it comes next week for one? Um is there a place I could get this in person? Is there like an actual human being I could buy this from or who's making these whose life and family would benefit from me going to them through Etsy or whatever? Um, and just sort of asking those questions, I think, is the place the place to start because, yeah, we just – it is um, really putting your head in the sand to pretend like there's nothing going on in these fast turnaround um, one click America like is totally fine there's no flaws to it you like you have to be honest and look at yourself and ask like why I can buy um, shoes for $12 like that's there's something else going on for me to be able to do that and for me to be able to get it in 48 hours slowing it down yeah I mean, they, slowing they, it down they used to say like or that one of the jokes was like Twitter should have a 30 second like timer on your ability to 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 publish your thought yes um because everyone just hate tweets everyone's just like is right these mm-hmm, social media mm-hmm. companies depend on you being really angry because mm-hmm. it means you click more and you and you look longer um but the impulse right it brings out our very worst natures right when we're impulsive mm-hmm. so impulse shopping right like if you can find ways to make it harder to impulse shop right like to just have like a couple extra minutes or like you're saying like four or five more days to think did I, did I need that? Yeah. <laughs> when it's so cheap and it's there tomorrow or even the same day, mm-hmm. you don't have to ask the question because there's, there's just not a lot of time to, mm-hmm. to worry about it. But it did kind of, even when I was ordering books, it's like, in a week, will I want this? Or do I just want yeah. it like right now? Yeah. And there were yep, yep, quite yep. a few moments where I was like, no, I'm going to get this, but I don't have time to read this. And I'm, I probably would never even like read the whole thing. Yeah. I've just been thinking about this topic the last five minutes. And so, <laughs> so I want to get all the books yeah. on it. Um, but having to think about, well, in five, in, in a week or two, when it actually shows up, will I want it mm-hmm. then? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of sad and scary, you know, how often it was like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I, I don't think I will. Um, in in preparing for this, yeah. this talk, I, I reached out to uh, a friend of mine who I would I would call a craftsman, um, Noah Meldy. Noah Me- Meldy. Meldy made uh, woodworking. Fan of the pod. Fan of the pod. Fan of the pod. Um, make, carves beautiful pipes, beautiful tables, beautiful furniture. Um, he is just, you know, he is a craftsman. He would say he's still learning it, but he makes beautiful work. You can look him up on the gram. But I asked him, like, what do you want people to know about this topic? Why do you woodwork? Mm. Like, why do you do what you do? And... Um, I think what he says is really ties it together in terms of like, let's connect this to a person. Um, so from a man who is making, he'll, he'll make you a table, but it's going to take him a few months and it's going to cost you more than if you went to Ikea. So like, why should I choose him? You know, he says, I started woodworking because of an urge to create something beautiful, useful and lasting. I would rather invest in creation than destruction. 
Consumerism is profit over quality. Craftsmanship is quality over profit. He says, my approach to intentional purchasing is twofold. One, cheap is expensive. Buying cheap means that if it is anything you will actually use, it will break, go into the garbage system, and need to be replaced. You get what you pay for, as they say. If you invest in something of quality, you get quality and longevity. Two, I want something good in a whole sense. I don't want something that just works. I want to be able to point to a thing and be able to say, this is good. I want to buy something that is making the world a more beautiful place. There are no passionate communities surrounding plastic garbage off Amazon. You are investing in the craftspeople who make it, not putting a few more bucks into faceless shipping companies. Whew. So good, though, that idea of like, I want, I want the purchases I make to be of benefit to the world, to somebody, to make the world more beautiful, you know? Um, and if that, if we even just pause, like you said, for f- four minutes before hitting buy and think like, you know what? Instead of buying from this nameless person, like, w- would the little boutique up the store have it? Um, would, is somebody I know able to make this? You know, I have another friend who sews clothes and she's always trying to tell people like, you can sew your own clothes. Like you can do this or buy it from somebody who can, but it is going to cost you more and it is going to take a minute, but it's, it's worth it in the end because it actually profits a human being beyond yourself and it adds some beauty into the world. Yeah. You can't really improve on those comments by Noah. So let's, let's just close it out. I mean, if we're heading into another roaring twenties, this would be the early side of that. Mm -hmm. And there would be time yet to say, man, the lessons of history are that the boom comes before the bust. And, and for Christians, you know, we're not meant to ride the tide of the anxieties, even of our cultural moment. We're, we're meant to have a, a stabler, deeper connection to the work of the Lord in the world work that is good and true and beautiful work that is worth investing in and work mm-hmm. that is always peopled um, which means it, it takes more time because life takes time things that matter take time so we want to encourage our listeners as much as ourselves mm-hmm. um, to a better way of thinking about the things that we buy and the way that we approach the things that we buy um, but Honestly, we gotta gotta be in it together. I need people looking over my shoulder yeah. when I have to make a decision about, yeah. about my next phone or whatever. Um, I need that accountability. I need I need my church. You know, I mm-hmm. need the people that I interact with, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to just to be able to say, yeah, like you know, mm-hmm. this is this is my life that is not. I'm not uh, embarrassed. <laughs> right. I wasn't trying to hide um, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. I spend my money, but I, I know that's the deeply personal thing um that's the last place that christians open their (laughs) lives is when it comes to their finances yeah but you know i think that all the more important uh, to be able to say man life together in the lord um doesn't need to be hidden or embarrassing or or impulsive um it could just be good Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. laura thank you for this conversation thank you for having me it's it's good for me to talk about and recommit myself to the value. Um, and so I hope that if you're hearing this, this isn't a guilt trip, but is a reminder that there's a way, there's a way to live and purchase and spend money, um, that fits with what you already value. And so I encourage you towards that, even if it is the tougher choice, um, or the more embarrassing or logistically, or it takes more than 48 hours. We, we encourage you to think about the ways that your, your shopping, your buying can match what matters to you. 
that's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on Newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.